Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for Double Truck Stories Podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories Podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's impossible to ignore the politically divided world we are living in right now. Wherever you get your news, whatever social media platform you use, it's everywhere. Now, in times of chaos, the world of sports is supposed to give us a break from all that rhetoric, and for years, for many people, that's exactly what they have been. But what happens when a team decides that these issues are too important to ignore? And what happens when the team that decides this is racking up titles and awards while breaking records in the process? These are the Golden State Warriors, led by a roster, a coach, and a GM who feel that being aware of issues in the mainstream are even more important than any they may see in the film room. From declining White House visits to speaking at Harvard University, this is a team using their moment to hopefully start enough discussion to create a thousand more. But how long do they have? People pay attention when the Warriors speak, but does that change if they stop winning? Stick around after the story for my conversation with senior writer for the undefeated Lane O'Neill and NBA undefeated senior writer Mark Spears as we talk about not just what the Warriors are doing, but what it means for the future. Now we present How the Warriors Became the Wokest Team in Pro Sports by Lene O'Neill and Mark Spears. How the Warriors Became the Wokest Team in Pro Sports by Lene O'Neill and Mark J. Spears. There's a moment during his conversation about athletes and activism at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government when Golden State Warriors forward Draymond Green seems to shift his weight. Green, who was in town to face the Celtics later that November night, has altered his game day routine to be at the lunchtime event, which was initially scheduled for a classroom, but had to be moved to a conference center when more than 500 students signed up. He takes the stage wearing high-top designer sneakers and a long-sleeved fishtail shirt. He folds his frame into a large wooden chair and fumbles with his microphone. I wouldn't pass up the opportunity to be speaking at Harvard. It's like a dream come true, says Green, before settling into his talk. Athletes should only champion issues they're passionate about, he says. He discusses the pervasive tensions between young people and police and the need to continue to educate himself about social justice. When a student asks for a response to those who say he should stick to basketball, Green leans forward, drawing closer to the crowd. It's an opening for Green to issue a philosophical declaration, a contemplation on the nature of athlete and society, although more social media friendly, and he delivers. That's funny, Green says after pausing a moment. People say athletes shouldn't speak politics. Well, I find that funny because everyone thinks they can speak basketball. The crowd erupts in applause. It's an authoritative answer from a guy with a seven-foot wingspan extending to his full proportions in a completely different arena. And it's representative of what we've been watching the Warriors do over and over in high-profile ways during the past year. Black athlete activists are not new, of course. Boxer Jack Johnson punched through racial barriers in the early 20th century. Jackie Robinson integrated baseball in 1947. Althea Gibson was the first person of color to win a Grand Slam title in 1956. And a dozen years later, Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised their black glove, black power fists atop the medal stand in the Mexico City Olympics. In 2015, a protest by the Missouri football team over racism on campus 
forced the resignation of the university's president, and the following year, LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, Chris Paul, and Dwayne Wade took the stage at the ESPY Awards to urge athletes to speak out against injustice. A host of WNBA players, including Maya Moore and Tina Charles, have worn t-shirts supporting Black Lives Matter. But these were individual athletes fighting for a cause, or teams engaging on one issue over a limited period of time. The Warriors are something else entirely. They're the NBA's winningest team, and possibly the country's most progressive market, with the most politically outspoken players and coach, during the most racially polarized period in two generations. It's an evolutionary development in the power and influence of the American citizen athlete, with commensurate risks to their reputations and livelihoods. The Dubs are not simply basketball superstars. They might just be the most progressive, the most woke team in the history of professional sports. It was a morning in late September one day after Warriors guard Steph Curry told reporters at the team's media day that he'd vote to skip the traditional NBA champion's White House visit, and Curry's wife, Aisha, was waking him up laughing. Trump tweeted about you, Aisha said. I reached up to grab my phone, Curry remembers now, and I had about 20 text messages. President Donald Trump had rescinded the yet-to-be-issued White House invitation, tweeting at Curry that since he was hesitating, invitation is withdrawn. Suddenly, Curry, the family-friendly face of the franchise, was at the center of one of the year's biggest sports and politics stories. The team had planned to meet that day at its Oakland practice facility to decide collectively about whether to make the trip. Instead, the day unfolded in a mixture of both gravity and weirdness. Curry recalls the next several hours being surreal. I'm like, he said he's not inviting you. We can still go, Green says with a laugh. We really honestly made a joke of it. More than three months later, before an early January practice, Curry seems unbruised by the incident and no less supportive of his team. When I talk about just being informed and thoughtful and passionate about what you believe in, we have guys all up and down this roster who kind of fall into that category. His own thoughtfulness springs from a childhood during which his mother, Sonia, shared experiences of growing up in a low-income neighborhood in Radford, Virginia. The family as a whole had a lot of run-ins with the police and things like that in Radford, and a lot of racism growing up there, Curry says. So she has a lot of stories around that. His father, Del Curry, is the all-time leading scorer for the Hornets. And while the family was well off, Steph says he was always conscious of being black and his obligations to the black people around him. He attended a small Christian high school. Of the 360 kids there, maybe 14 were African-American. We all sat at the same lunch table, he says. So we had a very tight community group that understood we were different in that space. I think we learned to protect that identity a little bit and celebrate it and have each other's back. And when he played AAU basketball with black kids from area public schools, he came to understand the differences in the worlds they inhabited, how some families struggled to put gas in the tank for an out-of-town tournament, but also that we all had some common ground that we could appreciate about each other. It was a figure-it-out-together quality for the team, for the culture, that he took into adulthood. And though last fall's Twitter firestorm was unusual because it pitted Curry against the President of the United States, it was only an extreme example of what many players on the Warriors are doing. Last summer, Curry and forward Andre Iguodala, who have invested in tech startups, 
organized the Technology Summit for NBA players. I'm trying to bust down a door for my people, Iguodala says. In October, after ESPN reported that Houston Texans owner Bob McNair had likened pro football protesters to inmates running the prison, Green posted on Instagram that because of its historical freight, the NFL should stop using the word owner. Other players, including forwards David West and Kevin Durant, have found purpose or purchase to speak about history and their growing racial awareness. Coach Steve Kerr routinely talks about politics at his news conferences, and last February, he tweeted, I subscribe to the Washington Post today because facts matter. What gives them the cover and authority to stray so far and so publicly from the topic society typically wants to hear from people who play basketball for a living? One could say it's their birthright as citizens to exercise the democratic mandates of civic participation and engagement in service of that foundational American imperative to form a more perfect union. But, psych, nah, it's all that winning they be doing. Barring calamity, the Warriors are favored to advance to the finals for the fourth consecutive year. And winning, Green says, strengthens them in a number of ways. Number one, you got so much attention at all times. Number two, you're a champion. They want to see what you got to say. You're doing something so great that it gives you even more of a voice. No one cares what a loser has to say. They're a talented team, says general manager Bob Myers with a variety of leaders of high character, and that affords them a degree of buy-in for their off-court views. But at the same time, I think it's something you have to protect. It seems to work for us because we win. But what if we don't win? Do these stories get written? Do these things get said? America tells itself a story that success in sports and elsewhere is predicated upon competitiveness, discipline, hard work, and character. Sports is as essential as religion to reinforcing those values to the nation, says Harry Edwards, an author, activist, and consultant for the Warriors and 49ers, who organized the 1968 Olympic Project for Human Rights that ultimately led to the protest in Mexico City. It has scribes, departed saints Vince Lombardi, read Auerbach, and hallowed halls of fame. It has sacred implements, he says, the ball that Hank Aaron hit over the fence when he broke Babe Ruth's record which people will pay millions for. When winning athletes, let alone winning black athletes, question the validity of mainstream definitions, it sets up an acute civic dissonance. Kaepernick or Carlos or Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf become heretics and are punished as such. But the all-I-do-is-win-win-win warriors have amassed so much cultural capital that they are not only worshipped, they're widely heard. All that discipline, smarts, true grit stuff, Their winning proves it works, Edward says. But their activism challenges whether it works for people in Oakland and East St. Louis and the south side of Chicago. The fact that they get to keep saying it is not only because they're winning, it's because winning in the Bay Area is a whole other thing. Outside his dope era clothing shop, during Oppression People Evolve, Everyone Rises Above, in North Oakland, Mr. F.A.B., a.k.a. Stanley Cox, muses about whether the Warriors are, in fact, the most politically progressive team ever. He's a rap artist and community activist who once did a freestyle rap about the Warriors that foreclosed that option to anyone who has thought about trying it since. Now he recalls Smith and Carlos and cites the Clippers wearing their warm-up jerseys reversed to protest racist remarks by then-team owner Donald Sterling in 2014. 
but I can't even think of a team in contention for social relevance, he says, in the way the warriors are demonstrating now. Some of that stems from Oakland itself. For more than half a century, Oakland and the Bay Area have been synonymous with the Black Consciousness Movement, Angela Davis and the Black Panthers. They've welcomed the free speech movement, anti-war protests, and the hate Ashbury counterculture. The cities by the Bay have been an incubator for gay rights, anti-fascism, and Black Lives Matter. Sitting behind the baseline of Court 1 at their Oakland practice facility, Durant recalls the poor D.C. area neighborhood where he grew up, noting the ways his head has changed and the time he's traveled from there to here. You can feel that culture when you get here, says Durant, who signed with the Warriors in 2016 and was last year's finals MVP. As a child, he lived off Pennsylvania Avenue. So you could drive 10 miles from the front of the White House and you're going to run into where I grew up. He knew where that street in front of his house led, who was living there and what it meant to be the head of state, he says, though he often tuned out all of those civics lessons along with anything else that wasn't happening off the court. He calls his neighborhood 95% black with 80% of us living in poverty and says he was so hell-bent on getting out that he turned a blind eye to the ways people were struggling to make it. It was part of his soul he kept on ice, and he sometimes wishes he could tell his younger self to open his eyes and offer a little more hope and joy to people who struggled the way I struggled. Because black joy is resistance. Just walking around downtown Oakland, just driving around East Oakland, getting to the game every day, you could just tell that somebody fought and died for these streets that we riding in, Durant says. Once you know that, you can't unknow it. Some wonder if that community connection will continue after the Warriors move to San Francisco's Chase Center for the 2019-2020 season. For now, though, Durant is focused on what's before him. You can appreciate the people that built this community. And it's not because of the Warriors. But I think we do a really great job of adding on to something that was already incredible. The Warriors now, especially with the team we have, we are kind of carrying the torch for being the socially conscious team. There are a bunch of guys that just want to start a conversation about how we can be better as a nation, as a community. Before every practice or shoot around, the Warriors players gravitate to a group of 20 chairs in a corner of the gym near the weight room. Kerr stands in front of the group and talks about the practice plan, the upcoming schedule, and other matters. Unlike most other NBA teams, other matters sometimes includes Trump's latest tweets, the Alabama Senate election, or the reign of the late Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. It's a little woke you in front of the TV where they watch game film, a spur-of-the-moment conversation guided by the events of the day and the passions of those who feel like speaking up. They share what they know and bookmark what they don't for further reading after they change out-of-practice shorts and shirts. Kerr is part of a small contingent of white coaches with a reputation for being thoughtful and outspoken about race, politics, and social justice. The group includes Spurs coach Greg Popovich and former Bulls coach Phil Jackson, both of whom Kerr played for, as well as the Pistons' Stan Van Gundy. When I came here, I had a feeling that Coach Kerr was kind of open-minded about everything, Durant says, and I heard the organization was that way. But once you get into it, and we talk about Trump winning the election before practice and before a game. And if we won a championship, what would happen? That stuff gets your mind thinking about what's going on outside the gym. And it all has our minds moving and working. 
And now I'm just caught up on everything that's going on in the world. When you're naive and when you just think about what you're passionate about and what you love every day, you tend to forget about what is outside. Coming in here gives you a taste of both. Your love and passion, but also the real world. I love it. Says West, a two-time All-Star. Steve and I, when we interact, basketball is like the last thing we talk about. For years, without media attention, West has been engaged in his own demonstration during the national anthem. He stands last in line and a foot behind the rest of his team in silent protest over issues of race, education, infant mortality, and black life expectancy. Before coming to the Warriors as a free agent in 2016, West says he expected Green to be outspoken and had heard Curry was well-read. But Kerr's interest in politics and his support of players' curiosity and engagement was, for West, a revelation. He just blurts out like, Morning, fellas. Look at this crazy sh going on in Alabama. You know what I mean? Just like that, he jumps right out there. One day in mid-December, a reporter is sitting with Kerr along the Court 1 sideline and asks about Democrat Doug Jones' win in the Alabama special election over Republican Roy Moore who was accused of sexual misconduct with minors. Curse starts cautiously, then builds momentum. I think it's interesting that it just felt like a moment that we had to hold on to some hope. But I don't want that to sound like a liberal conservative issue, because it really is not for me. It's character, and I don't even know Doug Jones. I just know that he doesn't molest young girls, and so that's a victory. Against a background of bouncing balls and other ambient gym noise, Kerr begins a small tangent on the fall of the Roman Empire and the dangers of internal decay. The part of him not consumed by basketball is fixated on history and politics, and it's a focus he encourages in others. Not only is it important from the standpoint that we're all citizens and human beings, and we should know what's going on in the world, but it's also important for the players to have balance in their lives. Clearly, though, nothing animates him like gun control, some of which has to do with family history. His father, Malcolm Kerr, was president of the American University of Beirut when he was killed by a gunman in 1984. But Kerr says he'd feel passionately about the issue anyway. It's insane, he says, that we can't come to a place where sensible gun control makes sense to people that we can just live in a country where 500-plus people can be shot from a hotel room floor and yet the very next government measure is actually to loosen the gun measures. Kerr says he's guided by a Popovich expression, by an accident of birth, as in, by accident of birth, you've lived the life you've lived, I've lived the life I've lived. It's important for all of us to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes. He says his ability to empathize has been shaped by travel and the diversity he's experienced as a teammate of black and Latino players. It's like you're thrown into this locker room with people who have lived a totally different life and see the world differently from you. It's incredibly healthy. And the guy who hired Kerr? He co-signs it all. Who am I to tell them what to feel, how to think, Myers says. All I would say and what we tell our guys is educate yourself. Try to speak intelligently on something. Research it. Try to look at both sides. Then, whatever you gotta say, say it. The Warriors have just beaten the Mavericks 112 to 97 on a December evening. And Iguodala, who finished with two points but a game high 10 assists, is standing at his locker. 
He's talking about the game, but about the past and the situational awareness he needs for the present and the future. I know about people who grew up the way I did, and I know about their struggle, and I know about the things that are set up for them not to succeed, says Iguodala, a 14-year veteran who grew up in Springfield, Illinois. This is the way life is set up, he tells his 10-year-old son. You're black. You're an African-American man, so you've got to be aware of your surroundings. And you have to choose the things you allow into your head. Iguodala has recently reread Tanahasi Coates' The Beautiful Struggle and has just finished Things Fall Apart, the classic African novel by Chinua Achebe. I curate everything that comes into my brain, he says. Though there's still some BS in there, like funny stuff, I'm still fighting that. It's that determined curiosity that distinguishes the warriors, says Edwards. What is singular about the Golden State Warriors And it's the only thing that you can really ask and legitimately project about a team like Golden State. They're the greatest, most informed, the most intelligent, the most critically and vitally political of their era. It's an era shaped by images of police shooting citizens, a video cannon watched by players who recognize that their own privilege and relative immunity doesn't extend to people who look like them or anyone else they love. It's an era in which fundamental national questions we thought had been asked and answered about race and equality are being re-engaged. It's also an era which athletes, especially in the NBA, have both financial power and the ability through social media to connect with millions worldwide. They can hit send without a coach's or general manager's permission or a third-party translation. Even Ali couldn't spread his message without intermediaries. The times have both framed the issues and compelled the responses. Like the men and women who came before them, the warriors are responding to what the moment calls for. Black athlete activism began with the struggle for legitimacy, then access, then dignity, and now power. And those struggles existed in a broader context. You can't talk about Jackie Robinson and the integration of sports separate from the civil rights movement. You can't talk about Jim Brown or Arthur Ashe without black power. And now you can't talk about Kaepernick, the national anthem protests, or the political levitation of the Golden State Warriors without the frame of the Black Lives Matter movement. When Green tied a critique of the word owner to white men and slave labor, Maverick's owner Mark Cuban called on him to apologize. Green responded by saying, I don't expect him to understand. He don't know the feeling I get when I turn on the TV and see an unarmed black man got shot by a white police officer. Those comments instantly became part of the national race conversation. But that, Kerr says, won't always be the case. The inevitable downturn will come, Kerr says. And when we're not winning at such a high rate, maybe there will be a different reaction to their words, to their positions on social issues, and the athlete activists publicly creating new forms of influence in America. Kerr says the Warriors don't spend time thinking about the future or their place in history. Instead, the most woke coach and the most thoughtful team in the history of pro sports encourages his players to meet this standard. Say what you feel as long as you're true to your convictions. The history will take care of itself. So joining me now from Los Angeles is senior writer for The Undefeated, Lene O'Neill. And also on the phone with us is senior NBA writer for The Undefeated, Mark Spears. Thank you both for being here. 
so much. Thanks for having us. So the first question, uh, uh, Linnea, I'll put to you, is uh, for the Warriors to maintain the level of attention their activism is getting, Like, what do you think is more important? Do you think it's a favorite to win the NBA title or having a coach like Steve Kerr who encourages the discussion? I I think certainly having um, Steve Kerr as a coach is a, a very important factor, but I think the overarching thing is winning. Winning reinforces all these um, deeply held beliefs in American society about discipline, about sacrifice, about worthiness. And when a team is as consistently winning as the Golden State Warriors uh, have done, then that gives them a platform. It elevates their platform. Um, Draymond Green said, you know, no one wants to hear from a loser, right? Um, it feels like maybe if you can't get that basic thing that you're out on the court to do right, then maybe people don't want to listen to you on other sort of unrelated issues. So winning, I do believe, gives them the cover that they need to extend you know, their voices. Now, Mark, you may, uh, in the piece it mentions uh, cultural capital that the Warriors have, can that be lost um, so what's your definition of cultural capital? Well, in the piece, I mentions like what they've been able to build up is their credibility. So when they, you know, when we speak, you should listen to us. And is that yeah, something that could, what? is that something that can go away besides if they like, are not contending? Um, I, I think now that as long as they're winning, uh, they're so popular that their voice is going to be heard. I mean, in essence, they have two of the three most popular players in the league in, in, uh, Kevin Durant and Stephen Curry, and you can make an argument that the only guy that could jump above those two is uh, LeBron James. Mm-hmm. So that, that gives them a strong voice as it is. Uh, you know, then you look at Draymond Green. He perhaps is the Dennis Rodman of the NBA today. Right. Uh, you know, and he's, you know, you must have a lot to say or, or be an interesting personality when. You're a three-time All-Star, and you have several commercials, but yet you average less than 15 points a game. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, he he has a very strong personality that people either like or or don't like. And but either way, you're you, you listen to what he has to say. Um, you know, Iguodala is a former Finals MVP. He's certainly very eloquent. Um, he could be kind of Doctor Sushis. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, no, it does. Of, uh, in, in some of his words, and you're, you're kind of whimsical, and uh, but deep at the same time. And David West is—he's uh, a guy who is um, extremely well read, um, owns books uh, that date back to slavery. Is very uh, engrossed in um, African American history. Um, guy that like subscribes to the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And then obviously Steve Kerr is, is just um, very well read, very deep. Um, comes from a family where his father was a, a professor who was um, killed in the mo- Middle East. Super woke, as they say. So the, I mean, the combination of all those guys together just brings an energy that you know. While there has been some Ali's and you know some Jim Browns and some Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's. Mm-hmm. There's never been a collective group 
that has the power that I think these warriors have. Now, in the piece, uh, this is uh, for Lene, you talk, uh, it, the evolution to this moment is mentioned with, you know, going from Jackie Robinson, Althea Gibson, Tommy Smith, and John Carlos. How aware are the warriors of the history behind what they're doing, or are they more just motivated by the current social climate? So I think, again, it's both. All of their success and their activism, it's it's the intersection of all of these things acting in concert. So um, that history certainly informs their activism. They know that, you know, they're not an island, that there were athletes and athlete activists that came before them that sort of lifted this bar and and elevated this platform to make it something other than just, you know, bouncing a basketball, getting a paycheck, being a spokesperson or a commercial pitch person, uh, that kind of thing. And keep in mind, they're in Oakland. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes almost another character in this story, that kind of history of activism, of um, you know, the Black Panthers originated in Oakland, the free speech movement, anti-war protests, hate Ashbury, the counterculture movement. And so all of that combines, right? It's not any one thing. It's all of these things acting in concert. And I think right. they're very, very aware of that. They talk about that. Kevin Durant talks about um, how they are continuing in the tradition, right? And that's something that they, they want to do and they feel a responsibility to do. Um, by the same token, they're speaking out on things that matter to them and things they're able to educate themselves about. And so it's not just sort of willy-nilly for all intents and purposes. It's things that they really care about, and, and those are, you know, concentrated in, in a lot of the things that came before and, and, you know, exactly where they're situated. Now, just one more, Linda. I, I, I it seems it was a theme of like right team, right coach, right city, right time. And how essential are all of those elements? Because here's Colin Kaepernick, also from the Bay Area, but someone who has some of those on the list, but not all of them. And the backlash he has faced has been night and day to how the Warriors and their activism and their outspokenness has been more embraced. Do you feel that that's a demographic of the fans more um, I do. I think, again, so just like if the Warriors have everything lining up to make them this activist powerhouse, uh, the, the absence of any of those factors then changes the equation. And for Colin Kaepernick, it's a, it's a different sport. Um, it's a different, as you mentioned, the culture of the NBA and the culture of the NFL are completely different. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, there's there's less security with the NFL and um, the the structure and the culture that they embrace and reflective of, all of that makes a difference. Uh, Mark can speak to that a, a little bit more, but certainly when I was talking with Steve Kerr, he pointed that out. He said it's a different equation in football. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he recognized that there was a whole different sort of power dynamic on the court as opposed to um, out there on the football field that makes – their activism much more likely, much more doable, and um, effective in the ways that that they've been able to uh, raise their voice. So, Mark, could you do you agree then that, like, basically, you could argue that M- the NBA is a safer space to be outspoken than the NFL? Um, yeah, yeah, no. Um, 
obviously the guarantee contracts help, but then you look at a guy like Stephen Curry and Kevin Durant, like they have huge brands, mm-hmm. you know, so for them to speak out publicly the way they do and for, for Stephen Curry to publicly say, hey, I'm not going to the White House. Right. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not going. Um, I think that speaks volumes about, you know, his character, uh, his beliefs, same with Durant. And, you know, it, it could work in an in a opposite direction for the pro-Trump people, or maybe he has somebody that he endorses and that the people that work for the company are pro-Trump. So, you know, it could work in a negative way. It could take dollars out of his pocket in that regard. Right. Uh, so, so, uh, so I think that by them speaking, that you do have, while they have guaranteed money and, and they got more and more of that to come, they're also putting themselves in a position where you could lose fans and, and perhaps put yourself in gener- uh, uh, in jeopardy of losing commercial money. Right. All of it comes with risk, right? All mm-hmm. of it comes with risk because these are people who are straying very far from the things that um, the broader culture and society wants to see from people who, you know, play basketball for a living or, right. or throw a football for a living. So all of it, let alone black athletes. Um, mm-hmm. And so all of it is a, is a really dicey proposition for any of these athletes to to be, you know, sort of front and center on some of the most um, roiling issues uh, before the nation. Now, Mark, Steph, Steph Curry in the piece talked about how, I mean, he kind of grew, he grew up in the environment afforded to someone whose dad is, you know, playing professional basketball. And, uh, but Steph's mother, Sonia, definitely did not and shared her experiences that she faced growing up in Virginia is there a lot of that in Steph and in the Warriors, do you feel, that where they, I know I mentioned the history before, but just, not just the history of athletes, but like carry on the legacy of their the stories that their families experienced? Yeah, I mean, Steph is one, I always say this, and I, and I knew him since he, he walked into the league. He, he's one of the like nicest people you ever meet in your life. Yep. And, you know, the guy you see on TV off the court, that's him. There's no fakeness to that. I mean, you could tell that he has amazing parents who did a fantastic job with him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so there was, he told me some stories about, you know, despite the fact that his dad was an NBA player, Dale Curry, and the family was well off, you know, like his father, uh, when he played AAU and the team had to raise money, car wash or do whatever they had to do, sell cookies or candy or whatever mm-hmm. to raise money, He's like, man, my dad easily could have gave us a thousand dollars for the whole team or, or paid for the whole team, uh, but he declined to do it because he wanted me to work with the team to to reach the goal of paying for the trip. Um, his mother grew up in rural Virginia. Her family dealt with a lot of racism, so his mother Sonia constantly told them about how blessed they were to be in the position that they were in. How how rare it was for black kids to kind of have a Cosby lifestyle, so to speak. And so, you know, she was constantly on them about how lucky and blessed they were. So I don't think they ever, you know, felt jaded. Um, In fact, I think Steph said that they never had excessive. They had what they needed, even though 
their father probably could afford the excessive. And I think that really, you know, instilled a lot in him about, you know, humanity and being respectful for what his family earned and what his family fought to to get there. Also with Steph, it seems like it seems like there was a little bit of a it, almost like comic relief in the middle there when his wife was telling him about like, hey, the president tweeted about you. And on the surface, that moment seemed a little bit like two famous people just having a public feud for lack of cooler or better words. But the genesis of all this was based on a popular opinion that, to put it mildly, the White House did not support or encourage racial equality. And while right after that, it seems like it didn't stick with Curry, I just wonder how you felt like, how does that not linger with Curry in the moment that he's having right now? And someone who has, in a way, access to the White House by potentially winning another NBA title. Well, he's also very close to Obama. So, <laughs> you know, there's that. Uh, but, you know, he, I, I will say the thing that was interesting about all this to me was I've never heard him be that strong mm-hmm. or that adamant about what he didn't want to do. I, it was no question in his heart, and he was basically stronger than anybody else on the team, mm-hmm. that he wasn't going to the White House. Right. And he was okay, whatever backlash or ramifications that came from it. And like like we mentioned, I mean, this ain't no kid from the hood or kid that didn't have a meal. And I'm sure that his family uh, certainly would benefit from what the president is doing now more than most would, right. you know, based on their financial situation. But you know, he he's a guy that thinks of the greater good of people. You know, this is a guy that went to Africa to help buy net to to keep kids from getting malaria mm-hmm. you know or instead of selling soda um he sells you know pushes brita water you know so he's very socially conscious he's very world conscious mm-hmm. he's very uh conscious of the struggles of the poor um and i think he'll be a humanitarian for life and i think um what's important for steph is just doing what's best for humanity and if is is, is he, he doesn't say a lot in that regard, but when he feels that strong about something, he's not shy. So that's I mean, it's interesting that you put that about the Brita water. That's actually a, I never actually considered that. That's pretty interesting that he how responsible he is. But um, moving on to Kevin Durant, really quick, uh, winning an NBA title was very important for Kevin Durant when he became a free agent and he took you know, the flack of coming to the Warriors. But also, as I learned from this story and learned from Kevin Durant's story from before when he was at Texas, uh, he also grew up in a part of Washington, D.C. where people struggled to get out. So in retrospect, was Durant not just drawn drawn to a winner, but a winner who is, from the title of the story, the most woke team in sports? Like, Was that a factor in his free agency, not just, I want to win, but... I want to win, and I want to have a bunch of guys around me that speak out like I want to. Well, he, I think he was surprised about the speaking. I don't think he was very familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember talking to him and him saying, you know, coming to practice and hearing the conversation, and, and they're talking about politics, and they're talking about uh, uh, social issues and this, that, and the other, and it, it was something that he never – received with Seattle or Oklahoma City and kind of like pleasantly surprised him and David West coming in 
being pleasantly surprised by the conversation, but I don't think either one of them expected the voice that the Warriors had. And I also think with the Kaepernick situation last year, mm-hmm. uh, the timing of that you know, during the season, it, it certainly probably capped off their voice a lot stronger than perhaps if it didn't happen. So, Lene, let me ask you this. What do you think other teams in any sport can learn from the Warriors and what they're doing? Um, The Warriors seem particularly good at being reflective of the voices of their players, the concerns of their players, and the the community, um, as opposed to simply the the PR and the, you know, the corporate line and the, you know, some of the priorities that people who don't look like them maybe would be engaged in. Anytime you have, you know, a a team and a corporate entity, you have to be about that. But Mm -hmm. they just seem very, very mindful that, you know, being in Oakland, being in East Oakland, um, you were talking earlier about the going to the White House, they would have had to answer for that mm-hmm. um, to to the city that they you know uh, represent, and so being mindful that you know when they go back home or when they don't have on a uniform, you know that athlete's privilege is lessened, and it never extends to people they love or people who look like them. So when they're looking at issues of police brutality or inequality or violence. This is intensely personal to them. Mm -hmm. And instead of having a leadership structure that tries to tamp that down because it is controversial, right, because there's, you know, divided opinion in America, um, instead of just trying to go the path of least resistance, the most sort of public relations way to do it, Mm -hmm. they have, you know, empowered... Um, and respected the uh, the team's desire to want to educate themselves and then speak out on the things that mean something to them. And that kind of mutual respect, I think, just speaks volumes, right? It's it's about the city and, and that constituency and th- those folks um, and about their own personal values and the things that they hold dear. And um, I believe it was the general manager um, who said, you know, what would we look like trying to tell grown men what to say or what to think? Mm-hmm. That kind of trust, um, I think, really goes a long way. And, you know, you can't, you can't argue with the results, either on the court, you know, that kind of uh, chemistry, or just in what they've been able to do in the culture, in the society, right? Um, you know... Shoot, the movie Black Panther is out. Yeah, <laughs> you know that setting, kind of a, a few records. intersection. Right, right, right. Um, you know, whatever you know, uh, sort of forces are at work. It, it's all in alignment, and I think other teams would do well to pay attention to that instead of trying to exercise such tight control mm-hmm. um, over people in situations um, that doesn't engender them to to their players or to the public. Now I have a question for me, for both of you, uh, Mark. You get to go first. Now the uh, the Warriors they seem to be attempting to bridge the co- the gap in conversation we have, where 
you know, you have these two bubbles on social media where there is like, there is no overlap. There is no third color in this Venn diagram. Uh, what do you think the Warriors want people that disagree with them to learn? I think they just want to start the conversation and get people to think. And there may be a little hint of if, if you really push them, maybe a little bit of regret that they aren't going to the White House because I think they would have loved to to try to have a conversation with President Trump. Mm-hmm. I, I think such a possibility is a long shot, and they recognize that. But I think they realize that even for the people that don't agree with what they have to say or have a problem with what they have to say, they know they're at least listening to what they have to say. Perhaps they could, you know, change somebody's mind or at least get somebody to think about the topic more, consider what they have to say. So they're okay jumping on a grenade, you know, mm-hmm. as long as you notice that the grenade is there. Gotcha. Um, I agree with Mark, and I would just add um, part of what folks stressed in conversation with me was that they educate themselves, right? So mm-hmm. they're not opinionated for opinion for opinion's sake. Right. They don't just go out and talk on anything because somebody puts a microphone in their face. Um, the day that I talked with Andre Iguodala, I asked him about net neutrality because he's big in Silicon Valley and wanting that to bring that type of investment. And he, he certainly was familiar with the issue, but he declined to offer just a you know a straight up uh, opinion of uh, the FCC action simply because he just felt like he wasn't well versed in it enough and how it affected his particular concerns. So that notion I've heard Draymond Green say the exact same thing that they go out and educate themselves on specific subjects that they are passionate about, mm-hmm. and I think that introducing that into the conversation, not just, you know, I haven't read anything, I haven't seen anything, but bump it, here's what I think about this. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it doesn't serve anybody. It doesn't serve them as as athlete activists. It doesn't serve the causes that they um, espouse. And so I think that's a real value add to be able to go out there and say, read up on this. Um, You know, Mark pointed out David West was a, an historian, and, you know, uh, players have subscriptions to the Atlantic. Steve Kerr, you know, talked about, he tweeted about subscribing to the Washington Post because facts matter, right? right? So it's the introduction of facts and history and knowledge into a highly charged set of conversations where opinions kind of can rule the day and passions and take over. And, and they're saying, you know, well, well, slow up. Before you just step out there, you have to know what you're talking about. And that and that's what they try to do. Now, final question. Have they, do you feel the Warriors have set a standard where the next dominant team will know this is sort of their responsibility? Or do you feel that the right coach, right city, et cetera, and this is just lightning in a bottle? I, I think it's mutually exclusive. I mean, because, um, you know, the Eagles are great. Maybe the Eagles have potential to, to speak how they speak, but, you know, we'll see. But the the Patriots haven't said anything. Nope. <laughs> nope. You know, uh, so, I mean, it's um, I, I think this is a unique team because you just have so many voices, you know. Um, I, I've never in 20-plus in years 
cover sports, heard a team with so many voices. And to be honest, I'll be surprised if such is duplicated because the way social media is, you know, criticism um, uh, from the masses, you know, there's always going to be somebody that's not going to like what you have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to have a really, really thick skin to to speak. And, and I think it's going to be harder to have that in the future. So we might be paying attention to a dinosaur right now. Where I agree with Mark and certainly defer to his um, 20 years of coverage, the hopeful part of me, uh, of sports coverage, the, the hopeful part of me says the times compel the responses, right? And mm-hmm. I think, or I'd, I'd like to think, um, as long as we have these issues that are really engaging America, that are, that are foundational and existential, and they're about what kind of country we want to be, and players find themselves with these platforms, with these voices, um, I, I, I hope there's another Warriors-type team uh, that picks up the baton or, you know, kind of carries this sort of forward, or at least the continuation of different players with voices, yes, maybe one day even including the Patriots, <laughs> you know. Um, I, I just have to hope that as long as there's a need for it, that, you know, people will find a way to find their voices and, and make them heard. Well, it's an important story for an important time. Lene O'Neill and Mark Spears, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, man. Thank Thanks for having you. me. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories Podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories Podcasts.